0: After more than a week working on a construction site outside in the hot sun in Haiti, doing my best to keep myself hydrated from the cooler of bottled water we took to the site each day, it was the day that we were not working that got me. I was in Papay, a small city in the central plateau of Haiti, with 10 other seminary students on a service and learning journey organized by the Unitarian Universalist Association and the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. We were there mostly to learn and experience the kind of eye-to-eye movement building justice work that makes the UU Service Committee such a transformative force in the world. And we were there helping in the building of an eco-village that offers a sustainable agricultural life to families who have been displaced from Port-au-Prince since the 2010 earthquake. The eco-village was a project of one of the UU Service Committee's partners of almost 20 years, the peasant movement of Papai, who support sustainable agricultural lives in their areas in incredible ways. If you missed this morning's adult religious education, which featured their work, and you'd like to know more about them, I have plenty of resources to share with you. Together, we moved rocks and dug trenches for the foundations of three homes. The trained construction crew consisted of the men of the families who would then live in them, while the women and children made trips to the stream about a mile away to carry back water in pots on their heads to mix the concrete with. The trip, though much of our journey was financed by a scholarship from the UUA, was a graduation gift that Seth and I gave to ourselves just about a week after we both finished seminary in 2011. This tells you a little bit about us. We didn't spend much time resting that summer after seminary, but the first thing we did was spend 10 days in Haiti. Our group, which quickly bonded, was very careful to remind each other to keep hydrated. And it was easier for me to remember to drink water when I was constantly thirsty and sweaty on the construction site. Knowing that the feeling of thirst signals that you are already dehydrated, I guess that I must have been so pretty much the whole time that I was in Haiti. But on the Sunday, that we spent attending church and touring around Papai, seeing sights outside of the close-knit community of the peasant movement of Papai. I became severely dehydrated. By the evening, I was struggling to eat anything and in pretty serious pain. By 9 p.m., I was unable to keep even water down. And the medic who was on our service trip with us determined that we were going to have to go to the hospital so that I could be given fluids by IV. We piled into the SUV. Our driver, both of our interpreters, a staff member from the UU service committee, our medic, Seth, and myself. Six men and me. I felt very cared for. But the ride there was harrowing. We'd been riding on the unpaved roads each day in the back of big trucks, so I had a fair amount of experience with the feeling and how it can jumble one's tummy. But on this night, my stomach was already feeling quite unsettled, and the driver was in more of a hurry than he usually had been, as he was clearly worried about me. But what we would find there was something I, would, I will never forget. Though it was awful, I'm glad to have seen this hospital rather than just go home and not know what the medical care was like for most of rural Haiti. When we arrived at the hospital, the first thing we noticed was the tents. So many of them all around the perimeter. There had been a cholera outbreak, so the, people, the hospital was overrun and the people with cholera were in the tents all around the outside of the hospital. A few people were bundled up in blankets sleeping on the front porch. Inside, we found a simple room with just a few beds, one occupied by a woman who ever so often let out a deep groan of pain. Once I was situated on one of the beds, Having been given a surgical sheet fresh from the packaging to sit on, a luxury clearly afforded to me because I was not Haitian. We began to notice the filth. Dead bugs, blood spatters both old and new. Dirt like you would not see in most of your own homes, never mind in a hospital. I was weak, leaning against Seth to to keep me upright, so I didn't really have energy to freak out about how scary that was. But our medic was clearly quite anxious from the conditions. He determined that I would not be allowed to take an IV from them. He had enough medical equipment with him that he could give me an IV in a pinch if he needed to, but he wasn't even sure if that was the best plan or if we should just go right away to the next hospital. I was given a package of sweet and salty powder to mix into my water and told that if I kept it down, we could go home. If not, he would have to immediately give me an IV or I might have some serious complications. I found out later from... That the man from the UUSC, with the help of our driver, was frantically outside making phone calls to figure out what to do if the hospital didn't work out. The next closest hospital was over an hour away. Given the scene and the knowledge that a needle, the the way it was told to me was a needle from that hospital was not going into my arm. But knowing that What was ahead of me, no matter what, was scary. I believe that I willed that water to stay down. But in the time it took, I had to use the bathroom. And this was when I saw what the hospital conditions were really like. If you thought it was bad up until this point. On our way, we had to step over piles of garbage on the path, some containing hypodermic needles. In the maternity ward, which was no more than a single room, we stepped over sleeping people who filled the room to capacity, beyond capacity. And I will tell you, I'm not squeamish about public bathrooms but I had never seen anything like this. It was unbelievable to me that a place like this existed, not to mention in a hospital. It was some of the most terrifying time I've spent in my life. Thankfully, Seth is one of those people who's incredible in a crisis. Do you know those kind of people that I'm talking about? the kind who just seem to keep themselves completely together in such a way that other people around them calm down too? Do you know any people like that? Saying that I was grateful that he was among the crew that I was blessed to have helping me that night doesn't quite express how I felt. When I looked to him, and he saw the fear in me, he could smile in such a way that helped me hold my resolve. He reassured me in my frightening state. He put his own fear aside, of which there was plenty that he had to deal with the next day. And he bolstered my courage and renewed my strength. In so many times of great fear, however, I've not had him by my side, or anyone else for that matter. In so many moments when I've not been sure whether I could face what was in front of me, I have had to find my resolve completely on my own. Sometimes those moments haven't been quite as dramatic as, and out of the ordinary as the story of my trip to the hospital in Haiti. Most of the things I fear are more day-to-day, more average, more universal human fears. Like the fear of failure. The fear all our work will be for nothing. The fear of sharing our ideas as they may not be appreciated or of sharing our stories as they may not be understood. The fear of losing the people we love the fear of losing our stability, our resources, our homes, the fear of not belonging, the fear of not being loved, the fear of inadequacy, the fear of all those who might hurt us, the fear of suffering, sorrow, pain, the fear that we won't won't be able to make ends meet, that there won't be enough to go around, These are deep fears, fears that haunt us all from time to time in one way or another, that can hold us back from truly living, that can confine us in a prison of our own making. As it is written in the Gospel of John Lennon, there are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we are afraid, we pull back from life. When we are in love, we open to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. We need to learn to love ourselves first in all our glory and our imperfections. If we cannot love ourselves, we cannot fully open to our ability to love others or our potential to create. Evolution and all hopes for a better world rest in the fearlessness and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. Opening our hearts in this way takes an incredible amount of courage. Truly living life takes an incredible amount of courage. In his book, The Alchemist, Brazilian novelist Paulo Coelho puts it this way Don't give in to your fears. If you do, you won't be able to talk to your heart. While I appreciate the sentiment that love overcomes fear, for me, the way through fear is faith. Faith, that powerful and somewhat ineffable combination of trust and hope that transcends them both. That voice inside inside you that says, even when all is lost, it will be okay. That says, you are not alone, even when you've lost something or someone incredibly dear to you that says, even when resources seem scarce, there will be enough. In that hospital in Haiti, the way that Seth looked at me reminded me of my faith in him and my faith in my life journey that told me that I would make it through that moment. And it was my faith in this universe that told me, even if I didn't, it would be okay and the process was a bit easier when I was calm enough to stop fighting what was happening. In many of the most difficult and terrifying moments of, our li- of my life, I reach out for something to calm me. A hand to hold, a tree that sacrificed its life for me, a smile to remind me of the love that I have known, a song that might lift my spirit. And sometimes it's a simple phrase that restores my faith. This is my favorite. All will be well. Based on the famous quote of 15th century Christian mystic Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Julian claims she heard these words spoken to her by God. She was praying in sorrow, praying on the real human suffering that exists in the world that no one is immune from, and these words came to her. Somehow, recalling these words can ease my fears if I let them. For much human suffering comes merely from the fears we carry about suffering and loss and loneliness. Life in the face of the truth that we will be faced with our greatest fears at some point is about accepting that truth and knowing that even when we lose someone dear or cannot make the rent, or trust someone who betrays us, even in the midst of some of the things that scare us the most, somehow, the world will keep spinning. The sun will come up once again. Support will come from somewhere, even if it's not where we expect. There have been plenty of times in my life when it has felt like all would never be well, like the world would cease to spin, like my fears would overpower me and I would be lost and alone forever. Have any of you felt times like that, even just for a moment? And the reality is, I got through them somehow, and so did you. And when I can go through them with faith that my path is my path and that this part of my journey will pass and lead me to the next, then the whole process gets so much easier and more lovely. I feel I can rest, enjoying the ride, showing compassion and knowing that I will receive it somehow in return building communities of support that will sustain me and that will outlast me, offering support to so many more people in need in the future. Seeing the mercy that is present in my life in so many new ways. Feeling the love that will walk with me on my journey.